market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Conor Matcher, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper, and with me this week, as always, is Alistair Grant, our Political Editor. But in breaking news, well, it's not really breaking, you've been here for a few days, Rachel, but we have a new member of the Scotsman's politics team, Rachel Amory. Welcome, Rachel. Tell our lovely listeners at home um, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so this is only day three of me working at The Scotsman, but um, having a great time so far. Um, I've been working in politics for the past two years. So the one thing to mention about Rachel is that you are a traitor initially, and you're, you're a traitor to your former podcast, our direct and mean rivals, the Stushi. So now you've got to bring some of that rivalry to the steaming. Yeah, so I've moved over to a new podcast here. It's like a, a, a club captain moving clubs. Anyway, we'll uh, talk about uh, various things today, but let's kick off with a look at the uh, local elections down in England. Um, Alistair, it was a big Thursday for both Labour and the Conservatives for different reasons. Take us through um, what happened and, and why it matters to, to Scots listening. Yeah, so I think the headline, the headlines from it are that it was a disastrous election for the Conservatives. They lost more than a thousand councillors across England. Obviously, these are local elections in England. Um, and even before the election, they were talking about potentially use, losing that number of councillors, but it was very much seen as kind of damage limitation. And they were saying it so that they could then say if they only lost, you know, a few hundred, that they'd actually performed better than expectations. So it was a terrible election for them. There is absolutely no getting away from that. Uh, and I think you look at Keir Starmer, the Labour Party, very much celebrating. They took a number of high-profile councils. There's a lot of uh, high-profile results to them. Keir Starmer in Medway, I think in Kent, yeah. uh, talking about how, as far as he's concerned, the Labour Party is now on course for a majority at the general election. I think a good, a good results for the Liberal Democrats as well, it's important to say. So they very much feel like they are on the up. Um, I think Labour... Probably, uh, and it's the same kind of picture in Scotland when you look at polling, um, they are benefiting from the collapse of the Conservatives as opposed to any kind of surge towards them. Uh, and I think the same in Scotland when you look at the polls, they're benefiting from the SNP's troubles and you know, the Conservatives' ongoing woes UK-wide uh, as opposed to any kind of sense of momentum or enthusiasm behind them. Although having said that, I'm, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself here, but there is a sense of momentum purely because... Keir Starmer seems like he's going to be, you know, if you look at this election, if you look at the polls, the next Prime Minister. And I think that sense of inevitability to that mm -hmm. is benefiting them in Scotland. And I think when you look at these results, I mean, I did a piece in the paper promoting my own piece here, but on the face of it, obviously, local election results in England don't have much to do with Scotland, mm -hmm. but they do to the extent that they show um, that this narrative that Labour are going to be pushing ahead of the general election, that you vote Labour to boot the Tories out of Downing Street, uh, that's something that Keir Starmer was saying in the aftermath of the re these results. That's something you should expect Scottish Labour and Anna Sarwar to hammer home in Scotland ahead of the 
the expected general election next year. And these results set them up for that, because as far as they're concerned, this plays into the narrative that they want to build. So although these results don't have anything to do with Scotland in terms of uh, being local results for England, they do have an impact in that regard. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the you look at it and obviously the narrative has been since then about coalitions, hasn't it? You know, between or potential coalitions between various parties after the next general election. Um, and we'll come on to that. But I thought it was interesting to see two smaller parties, not necessarily small parties, but, you know, both the, the Liberal Democrats in, in England having probably their best day since 2010 um, in terms of pure results, but also the Green Party in England, particularly in rural areas of, of England, picking up an entire council in, in Mid-Suffolk. You know, they doubled the number of seats that they had versus the last time these elections were run. Very good day for them. And as you say, it seems like the Conservatives' opponents across the country are benefiting from their collapse rather than any rush towards one specific party. Um, Rachel, I don't know what you think, what you made of them and what, you know, whether or not we could see an English Green Party uh, surge at the next general election or whether or not the Lib Dems are going to be in a position to really repeat their 2010 feet and end up in government? Well, I think even a few months ago, you would have struggled to suggest that the Lib Dems and the Greens would have done quite as well as they have. So it's going to be, they're going to be feeling very good on the back of all of this now. Um, and I think the key thing for them now is trying to keep that momentum going ahead of the next general election. They need to keep that building up if they want to perform well and if they do want to try and return some MPs in those areas. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll look at the projected national share um, which is this bizarre bit of estimation that pollsters do after local elections, which kind of project um, the local elections across the country. That puts Labour on 35%, the Tories on 26 the Lib Dems on 20%, and others on 19%, which gives you an example of quite how unreliable that is for the general election next year. But Alistair, it's come up, we've mentioned it already, coalition talk. Effectively, the Lib Dems, Labour and the SNP have been in a fight of rhetoric over the last few days over who is going to be relevant and who isn't. Yeah, we've had this uh, kind of tactical voting battle that I think we're probably going to see a lot more of in the coming months. We've had the SNP putting out press releases saying that, uh, you know, in the event of a hung parliament, which they are pitching as something that's likely, uh, they could hold the balance of power. And that would kind of require Labour... If, if Labour wanted to get the SNP's support, they'd have to, you know, give in to the SNP's demands for powers over a second referendum. Uh, I think the one thing to say about that is that it relies on a situation that is probably quite unlikely. In the first instance, a hung parliament. Yep. But in the second instance, Labour agreeing to do some kind of deal with the SNP. It's much more likely that Labour would try and do a deal with the Liberal Democrats. Uh, I think you can see that from what Keir Starmer is not saying, but he's not ruling out a deal with the Liberal Democrats in the same way that he repeatedly has with the SNP. And that's the frustrating thing about Scottish politics is that the Conservatives always push this narrative up in Scotland that the SNP and Labour could do some kind of shady backroom deal uh, and they present it as if it's something that's likely to happen. Keir Starmer has ruled this out so many times that I don't think you'd even be able to count them if you went back. But I suppose the Conservative narrative is all, always that Keir Starmer will end up going back in his word because he'll be so desperate to get into power that he will approach the SNP or agree to some of their demands. But as I say, it's much more likely they would do a deal with the Liberal Democrats. And I think that'll be one of the things that to watch out for. It's a fair criticism of Keir Starmer, though, isn't it? That he, he, he doesn't stick to his promises. 
It's a fair criticism, but I'm not sure what he would gain from a deal with the SNP. I'm not sure what would be in it for him. Unless, you know, it'd just be, it's such a, it relies on such a particular set of circumstances. Yeah. But, you know, you, if you are the new Prime Minister of the UK, uh, and we've seen this from the repeated rejections of the UK government when it comes to the SNP asking for a Section 30 order to hold another referendum. But if you're the new Prime Minister of the UK, the new Labour Prime Minister, and you're wanting to put forward your own agenda, to put forward all these different ideas for change, uh, to, to get your own momentum, front foot forward, probably the last thing you want to do is to start entering into a constitutional uh, negotiations with the SNP to potentially break up the UK. What do you think, Rachel? Do you think this is just the SNP and Stephen Flynn desperately trying to stay relevant as their, their polling figures plummet? They'll definitely want to try and stay relevant um, in all of this. But it's, it, one thing to think about is if Labour was to go into a coalition with the SNP, that will be something that some of their supporters don't want. And that's something we're seeing here in Holyrood with the, the SNP and the Greens. The SNP have had to take on some Green policies that haven't necessarily been all that popular. And that'll be on the minds of everybody down in Westminster at the moment here. But in terms of polling, I think that is... Um, something that Stephen Flynn in Westminster is going to have to think very carefully about. It's a new poll out this week from Servation and um, it's still projecting that the SNP will be the biggest party in Scotland, but very close behind is Labour, like so close that it's a problem for the SNP now. Um, and also the poll suggests that Anna Sarwar as a leader um, he's the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. He's actually now slightly overtaken Hamza Youssef as being the most favourable leader in Scotland too. So while this poll suggests that the SNP are still in the lead, still the biggest party, it is too close for them to be comfortable now. Do you think that Hamza Youssef, obviously he's got work to do given on his own personal ratings. You look at has his reputation among voters, he's viewed as not particularly competent, certainly not on the competent side of the scale. That nickname that uh, opposition politicians stuck on him, you know, Hamza Useless, has stuck. It's one that opponents use regularly on social media and places like that. How does he go about making a dent in that sort of uh, personal rating? But also, critically, how does he keep those yes voters on side when that yes block in that poll that you mentioned today, it's still around 50%? Yeah. Um, pro yes. How yeah. does he keep those on side when his own party is collapsing? Well, as you were saying there, um, support for yes, if there was to be an independence referendum now, is still at 48%. So that would suggest that people who still support independence are drifting over to the Labour Party, which will be a worry because that's their main audience for the SNP, isn't it? That's what their whole party is based on. So that's certainly going to be a worry for them, isn't it? Absolutely. And I don't know what you think, Alistair. What do you think? Where do you, where do you put Labour at the minute in Scotland? Because it's, I feel personally as if they arguably should be ahead. I mean, I think it's, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier on. I think they are benefiting from the SNP being in a state of internal crisis. Mm -hmm. They've obviously got an ongoing police investigation. They had high profile problems with their auditors. Uh, you've got Hamza Yusuf, a new First Minister, who should really be pushing forward his own agenda. Um, grabbing headlines about what he wants to do in Scotland and instead is just constantly firefighting these internal problems. Uh, you've also got a Scottish government that has been in power since 2007, the SNP. And there's just a natural sense of when a party's been in government for that long that they're getting tired, you know, they can have accusations of being stale thrown at them. I think that's partly why they brought the Scottish Greens into government to try and rejuvenate things a little bit. So I think 
As I say, touching on what I said earlier on, I think Labour are benefiting from other parties' woes and the collapse of the, the UK, sorry, the Conservatives across the UK, as opposed to having any kind of particular enthusiasm for them as a party. But having said that, uh, I mean, Keir Starmer and Anna Sarwar, there is a sense of optimism around Labour at the moment. I mean, if you speak to people in the Labour Party uh, behind the scenes, and in the past they've always been quite open about their sense of dejection in Scottish yeah, politics yeah. and their sense of despair and not being able to really get their message across, not getting anywhere in the polls. But if you speak to them now, that narrative has totally changed. They're much more optimistic. They're much more uh, hopeful about the future. And they're also talking about, you know, potentially targeting up to 20 seats in the general election, which would have been unheard of only a matter of months ago. Mm -hmm. You know, that is really something that's happened in the last, in, in very kind of recent times in Scottish politics. There's an acceptance that they won't win 20 seats. They're not expecting to uh, come back with that result at a general election. But the fact they're targeting them and that they want to take the fight to the SNP and bring them as close to knife edge as possible, I think is, you just wouldn't have heard that from Scottish Labour last year even. There's also, you know, potential expectation management going on there. The poll that I think was out last week um, from Redfield and Wilton had suggestions of them winning 27 seats to the SNP's 23. You know, that would be absolute massive generational shift in the makeup of Scottish politics. People talk about Scottish Labour and their previous domination like it was yesterday. It was 16 years ago since they last dominated Scottish politics in the way that they might do from 2024. Um, I'm interested in both of your thoughts about how Anasawa will be able to pitch himself as a change candidate when he's probably, you know, we talked of the coalitions down south, Anasawa by 2026 might well be the continuity candidate for the UK government, potentially reliant on Lib Dem votes in Holyrood, potentially even reliant on Scottish Tory votes. Do you think he's potentially setting himself up to a, bit, a little bit of a difficult time as a minority leader, say, if they become the biggest party in 2026? It's certainly going to be um, a big task for him, but certainly one that I think he's really going to want to do. He's he's already said that he wants to be the next First Minister. He wants to be in government in Holyrood. So he's certainly going to want to take that challenge on. The big thing is to not be complacent. He's getting all these great polling results. Um, he just can't sit back and go, that's the job done. Um, we've seen Labour do that before in Scotland to their detriment. Um, the Labour Party themselves have even admitted to doing that. So th they need to learn the lessons there and make sure that doesn't happen in the next year or so in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the, the kind of position in Scottish politics, I think he, he could come in and still present himself as a fresh face, particularly if the SNP's, you know, doesn't get its act together in terms of its internal troubles. So I think it might be difficult for him, depending on what happens down south, but I think if they do, I mean, this is completely hypothetical, but if there was a Labour government, you know, a majority Labour government, it would still be quite fresh by that point. It'd still be bringing in a lot of its own policies. If you look at in the past, governments usually enjoy a little bit of a honeymoon period. Um, I think if they go into coalition with the Liberal Democrats, the parties aren't that far apart. I can't see a lot of friction there. They also have slightly different stances, well, substantially different stances in the past on things like the EU. But even then, what, what the Liberal Democrats are saying on that now, I just don't think, I think they'd probably be quite happy to get along together. So, yeah. Are we predicting doom and destruction for the Conservative Party across the UK? Or is there a route back? I mean, I think never say never in politics. There's, it's always bad to get complacent about it's also what might happen next. always bad to make predictions that turn out to be complete bunkum as well. Yeah, well, <laughs> it doesn't look good for them. I mean, you've got those local election results were terrible. All the signs do not look good for them. And I think they hoped that Rishi Sunak would be a figure that, because of his own personal popularity, 
might be able to uh, take some of the flack away from the party, but they've just, they've gone through such a difficult time. Boris Johnson and Partygate, the disastrous tenure of Liz Truss, it's just hard to see them recovering enough from that. I don't think it'll be a complete washout for them, but I think we can, it's safe to think they're going to be in third place, aren't they? Could even be in, in Scotland, could even be in fourth behind the Scottish oh, Greens. They were yeah. tight, tight in the 2021. Um, and we in, know that the Greens in the last election did did well um, and there's popularity growing there, particularly amongst young voters too. So, yeah, that would be a different, definitely an interesting one to look at. We'll touch on uh, yet more internal strife at the SNP. There haven't been any arrests in the last week, which I think is probably good news for, for those running the party. But they have had a different... Uh, resurrection of an internal issue, which is the, another row involving um, Joanna Cherry, um, well known for her gender critical views. And in this case, it's obviously um, about her cancelled performance at the stand, which is run by one SNP MP, Tommy Shepherd. Alistair, he, he's gone a bit to ground on this one, but it's interesting that this story is happening and it is, in fact, a legal case between two SNP MPs. Yeah, so this is Joanna Cherry, who had a show lined up at the stand during the Edinburgh Festival coming up in August. And it got, she says that she was approached by the stand to do this or by the production company. Um, she did an event last year at the Fringe with Ian Dale as part of his political podcast. It uh, generated a lot of news stories at the time. It certainly had a, an audience in terms of people, you know, it was quite a well-packed out venue for that. So she's obviously then had this invite rescinded. This event has been cancelled. The stand is saying that staff had raised concerns about working it and they wouldn't have been able to kind of legally work it, I think, with the, the number of staff who'd agreed to work. And now Joanna Cherry is basically asking them to apologise uh, and put the event back on. Otherwise, she will take legal action. So she's threatening them with legal action. She's got the opinion of Aidan O'Neill KC, as it is now, backing her up on this. So it's very much... It's an issue that, as you say, has been bubbling away in the, in the SNP and other parties for a long time, this argument over uh, trans issues and uh, gender-critical beliefs. Uh, and Joanna Cherry would say that her beliefs are a protected characteristic, which they are. We've had court cases about this in the past. So for her, it's a cut-and-dry case that she is being discriminated against on the grounds of her beliefs, which are a protected characteristic. Um, but as you say, the stand was co-founded by Tommy Shepherd. Um, I'm not sure how much he still has to do with the day-to-day -day operational running of it, but it's certainly he is highly associated with it. He's and he's not, said, he's not said anything about it, as far as I can tell, certainly at the time of recording this podcast. Uh, journalists have tried to get in touch with him, including myself. Uh, so yeah, it's, a, it's another kind of difficult thing for Stephen Flynn as the new SNP Westminster leader to deal with. And he was on the radio the other day making it quite clear that while he disagrees with Joanna Cherry on trans issues, uh, on her gender critical beliefs, he does support her right to have those beliefs heard. So he said that he supported her. Probably more support than she ever would have got from Ian Blackford on this issue. Uh, and Joanna Cherry was quite quick to take to social media to thank Stephen Flynn for that. So there is, I think you can see the way that Stephen Flynn is dealing with this is slightly different because the SNP Westminster group was never seen as a very happy, happy collection on this particular issue. There was a lot of infighting and disagreements, um, and Joanna Cherry has always been quite outspoken on it. Stephen Flynn, he is a, uh, a an MP of your re your former patch, Rachel. Presumably, you've been watching, and, and when you were at, at, at the Press and Journal, you were watching very closely what 
Mr Flynn was doing in Westminster. How do you think he's got on as SNP leader compared to his predecessor? I think he has brought in a new sort of, it certainly has been a new sort of leadership compared to Ian Blackford. Even just the fact that he is younger and, um, as you said, from the northeast as well. More dynamic. Perhaps, perhaps, <laughs> yes. Um, so I think there has been a sort of a new image given to the Westminster group down there. But like you said, it hasn't got rid of sort of the infighting. If anything, it's actually maybe highlighted the infighting that was going on a bit more than we did kind of see a, a sort of attempt to try and keep things quite together under Ian Blackford, whereas the, the divisions that we're seeing now are are a lot more to the front of, thing, of um, how things are going, aren't they? It's interesting because I think uh, I was talking to one senior SNP um, figure at the, at the uh, announcement that Hamza Youssef was First Minister in, and they called for the self-imposed discipline of the SNP to, be, to come back, you know, following the quite difficult leadership contest. I don't think that's happened. I think it's arguably, as you say, Rachel, it's gotten worse, hasn't it, since Hamza Yusuf's been in power? Well, I think there's now just an acceptance that the S- I mean, the SNP, we've spoken about this before in this podcast, the SNP was known, certainly the modern SNP, for its kind of iron discipline uh, in the sense you'd never get MSPs, for example, in Holyrood causing trouble from the back benches, really. They were just an extremely tight group in terms of their messaging and their communications. And a lot of that has changed. They've actually become probably more like a normal political party. Yeah. They've now got backbench figures, like, you know, famously, well, famously by Scottish politics standards, probably not famously by any others, <laughs> Fergus Ewing, the former SNP minister, who is quite often a foreign in the side of the Scottish government, quite willing to speak out on issues. They've got figures like Kate Forbes, who, you know, has made her disagreements on certain issues clear. Uh, they've got other figures in the backbenches that have been speaking out a bit more on issues. I think it's just, it's, for the SNP, it's not a good thing because it makes their lives more difficult for the SNP leadership. For everyone else, it's just a normal political party. And for you know, the day-to-day workings of, a, of democracy, you kind of want figures to be speaking out from the back benches on issues. So I don't think it's a, a bad thing from the public's point of view. We haven't mentioned the big British event that happened at the weekend, which was, of course, the coronation of King Charles III. Um, I'm going to link this to Scottish politics for for two reasons. One is that there was a simultaneous All Under One Banner march, which was headlined in the end by Alex Salmond, um, the leader of the Alba Party. There was also the motion in Parliament, which you listened to, Rachel, for uh, the coronation of King Charles, which included Hamza Yusuf being the only one to not say, God bless the King. How do we feel that, and how do you feel, Rachel, you know, the coronation has impacted Scottish politics, if at all? Uh, And maybe what's the impact of the independence movement um, having Alex Salmond as its main speaker on a day like that? Yeah, Alex Salmond has been very outspoken in the past couple of weeks about the monarchy. It's hard to see how he wouldn't have been in attendance himself if he was the First Minister, um, if this had happened when he was in charge. Yet interesting to see the speeches in the chamber um, at Holyrood, um, all very sort of praising of the coronation and um, the sort of traditions that it sort of stands for. Nobody particularly spoke out in in any sort of way at all. Um, I think the only thing, as you said, to note was Hamza not saying God save the King at the end of his speech there. Um, When it comes to the monarchy and independence, there's always been this question is would an independent Scotland have the monarchy or would it have an elected head of state? I think it would be worth, if the SNP are wanting to have independence, it would be worth saying that they would keep the monarchy because I feel like those who are against um, the monarchy and want a republic in Scotland, they are going to vote for Scottish independence regardless. 
and it's the ones sort of who are only slightly yes or are in the middle and unsure, they tend to be more in favour of the monarchy. And so the SNP are going to want to please them as voters. So I think as a, as a move forward for them policy-wise, I think it would be wise for them to say they would keep the monarchy. What do you think, Alistair? Do you think it's had any impact over the weekend? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always... I mean, notably the Greens didn't uh, make a statement in Holyrood. They're obviously uh, Republican in terms of their stance on this. Um, and in the past, there's been... I remember you know, previous instance, instances in Holyrood where Patrick Harvey, for example, has been criticised over his language around the, the royal family. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's just one of these things. It's, it's obviously a, a major event, major occasion. I don't think it's had much impact in Scottish politics. I think it's worth bearing in mind that the SNP under Alec, Alex Salmond had the stance of keeping the monarch as the head of state. So I imagine they will continue that going forward. I think the attitude of political parties... Certainly those like the SNP that aren't, um, this isn't a foundational issue for them. I think their attitude towards the monarchy is completely guided by what they think the public wants them to say on this. They don't have any strong stances on it. I think it's quite well known that Hamza Yusuf is not a particular fan of the monarchy as an institution. But obviously he's now First Minister and he has to go through the motions and uh, say the, the necessary things. And he's quite happy to do that. He obviously sees it as part of his duty. Um, but yeah, they are completely guided by where they think the public stands on this. And I think the public, certainly with uh, the new King Charles, are very much, uh, I don't want to say the jury's out, but they're just waiting to, see, waiting to see what happens, I think. There's obviously a lot of enthusiasm around big events. I think we saw that with the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. When you looked at polling around that time, enthusiasm for the monarchy went up. So with these big events, people become more interested. But in general, I think the pattern of polling is that people are becoming more sceptical of the monarchy as an institution. Uh, there isn't as much support for it as there was in the past in Britain. Uh, so who knows how things might change in the future. Absolutely. I won't ask you, either of you, whether or not you pledged allegiance to the king in the middle of the coronation <laughs> ceremony. Um, I'll, I'll let listeners fill in the blanks. That is all we've got time for this week. Um, thank you very much at home for listening. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us this week as well. And we'll be back next week. I won't be here. I'm on holiday. But there will be an episode for all of you regular listeners to the Steamy. Keep up to date with all the goings on in Scottish politics on scotsman.com. Make sure to sign up to um, the politics newsletter as well, where you'll get the biggest stories sent directly to you as they break. Thank you very much for listening once again. Bye-bye. <laughs>